Hey, this is Todd coming to you from the uh, Sports Library and Spirituality in Verona, Wisconsin. And I just want to say thank you to, to Anchor and Spotify for the, uh, the chance to be, the chance to have a podcast. And I would like to also say thank you to the listeners, too. Thank you. Hi, I'm Todd. Welcome to the uh, Sports Review and Spiritual Library here in Verona. I'm going to be doing a reading on the Alcoholic Anonymous Big Book, 4th edition. And I'm going to be the. This was wrote. This was wrote by her. This was 190 women that uh, put down their experience of strength and help, and they organized the big book back in uh, back in '39, I believe. Yeah, 1939 copyright, and uh, the fourth edition was in 2001. And uh, yeah. I'd love to have a first edition of this book. That's interesting. If anybody's got one, just give it to me. <laughs> All right, here we go. Women suffer too. Despite great opportunities, alcohol nearly ended, ended her life. In early members, she spread the word among women in our pioneering period. What was I saying? From far away, as if in a delirium. I heard my own voice calling someone, Dorothy, talking of dress shops and jobs. The words came clear. The sound of my own voice frightening me, frightened me as it came closer. And, and suddenly there I was talking. I knew not what to, what to, what to, I knew what someone, I never, seen before that very moment. Abruptly, I stopped. Speaking, where was I? I'd worked up, I'd worked up, oh, I waked up in a storage room before fully dressed on a bed or a couch. I'd wake up in my own room. In or on my own bed. Not knowing what about today, not only what hour or day, it was afraid to ask. I was afraid to ask, but this was different. This time I seemed to be already awake. This time I seemed to be already awake sitting upright in a big easy chair in the middle of an animated conversation with perfectly strange young women who didn't appear to think it strange. She was chatting on pleasantly and comfortably. Terrified, I looked around. I was in a large, dark, rather poorly furnished room. The living room a basement flat. Cold calls started chasing, cold chills started chasing up and down my spine. 
My teeth were chattering. My hands were shaking. So I tucked them under me to keep them from flying away. My fright was real enough, but it didn't account for those violent reactions. I know what they were all right. A drink would fix them. It must have been a long time since I had my belt my last drink. But I didn't dare ask this stranger for one. I must get out of here. In any case, I must get out of here before I slip my abysmal ignorance of how I came to be here. And she realized that I was a start staring bad. I was mad. I must be. She says this match was crazy, I believe. And uh, this is what we go through. And this is what we, what we uh, encounter. It takes us a while to get over this stuff and realize that, hey, you know, we got something going on. The shakes grew worse, and I looked at my watch at 6 o'clock. It had been 1 o'clock when I last remembered looking. I'd been sitting comfortably in the restaurant with Rita. My six, drinking my six martini and hoping the water would forget about lunch. Oh, hey, the waiter would hope forget about the lunch order at least long enough for me to have a couple more. 15 minutes I'd waited for her. And of course, I had had the unusual gaunted swigs from the bottle as I painfully got up and did my slow, spasmodic, spasmodic dressing, in fact. I had been in very good shape at one o'clock, feeling no pain. What could have happened? That had been in the center of New York on noisy 42nd Street. This was obviously a quiet residential section. Why had Dorothy brought me here? Who was she? How had I met her? I had no answers. I dared not ask. She gave no sign of recognizing anything wrong. But what had I been doing for those five hours, those last five hours? My brain whirled. I must have done something, I must have done terrible things and I wouldn't even know it. Somehow I got out of there, walking five blocks past brownstone houses. There wasn't a bar in sight, but I found the subway station, the name on it was unfamiliar. I had to ask the way to Grand Central. It took three quarters of an hour and two changes. get there. Back to my starting point, I had been in remote reaches of Brooklyn. That night I got very drunk, which was usual, but I remembered everything, which is very unusual. I remember going through what my sister assured me was my nightly procedure of trying to find Willie, Willie Seabrook's name in the telephone book. I remember my lottery, my lottery resolution to find him, asked him, help, help me get into that asylum. He had written about, he had written about 
I I remember asserting that I was going to do something about this. But it couldn't go on. I remember looking lovingly at the window. As an easier longingly at the window. As the window as an easier solution. Shuddering at the memory of that other window three hours before. In the six agonizing months in London Hospital Ward. I remember hitting the peroxide bottle in my medicine in my medicine chest with gin. Yeah. In case my sister found the bottle. I had under the mattress, had under the mattress, and I remembered the creeping horror of the inter, interminable night in which I slept for about for short spells and wake and try and dripping with wake wake dripping. What comes Woke dripping with cold sweat, shaking with utter despair to drink hastily. From a bottle and mercifully pass out again. You're mad. You're mad. You're mad. Pounded through my brain. With each returning, each returning ray of consciousness, and I draw the refrain with the drink. I gotta take a break here. I gotta get some. I gotta get some lubrication going on. But yeah, that's a, uh, she was going through hell. I remember down in Mexico, uh, they would buy a bottle of alcohol, rubbing alcohol. They call it a, a rubby. What they do is they take Cook cool and put it in the rubbing alcohol and drink it. Oh my god, it's just like the color was disgusting. It looks like the rusted color. It's horrible. That went on for two more months and before I landed in the hospital and started my slow fight back to back to normalcy. It had been going on like that for for over a year. I was 32 years old. When I look back on that last horrible year of constant drinking, I wonder how I survived it, either physically or mentally. For there were, of course, periods of clear realization of what I had become, attended by memories of what I had been what I had expected to be. And the constant contrast, I'm sorry, and the contrast was pretty shattering. Sitting in a second avenue bar, accepting drinks from anyone who offered. After my small steak was gone or sitting at home alone with the inevitable glass in my hand, I should remember and remember. I should remember and remembering I would drink faster working speedy oblivion it was hard to it was hard to reconcile the ghastly present with the simple facts of the past my family had money 
I'd never known denial of any material desire. The best boarding schools of finishing school in Europe had fitted me for the conventional role of Gabriel Deliante and young matron. The ones in which I grew the Prohibition era immortalized by Scott Fitzgerald and John Helms Jr. had taught me to be gay with the gayest. My own inner urges led me to outdo them all. The year after coming, the year after coming out, I, I worried, I'm sorry, I married. So far, so good, all according to plan, like thousands of others. But then the story became my own. My husband was an alcoholic, and since I was had, since I had only contempt for for those without my own, for those without my own amazing capacity, the outcome was inevitable. My divorce coincided with my father's bankruptcy, and I was work cutting off all allegiances. Now accounts for allegiances and responsibilities to anyone other than myself. For me, work was only a different means to save to the same end. To be able to do exactly what I wanted to do. For the next two years, I did just that. For greater freedom and excitement. I went abroad to live. I had my own business successfully enough for me to indulge most of my desires. I met all the, pe all the people I wanted to see. I saw all the places I wanted to see. I did all the things I wanted to do. I was increasingly miserable. Headstrong and willful. I rushed from pleasure to pleasure. Found the nature, sorry, found the return diminishing to the vanishing point. Hangovers began to, hangovers began to assume remote urgency necessity. Blanks are more frequent and I seldom knew how I got home. I think that's blackouts. I was drinking too much. They were on the rant longer. They were no longer my friends. I'm sorry. They were no longer my friends. I moved from group to group. Then from place to place. And when I drinking with the creeping with the creeping uh, miss What's diagnosis? I'm sorry. Also, it no longer gave me pressure. 
It merely dulled the pain. But I had to have it. I was honestly unhappy. When I entered the... When I entered the... When I entered sanitarium for prolonged and intensive psychiatric treatment, I was convinced I was having serious mental breakdowns. I wanted to know. I tried to cooperate. As the treatment progressed, I began to picture myself of the temperament that had caused me so much trouble. I had been hypersensitive, shy, idealistic. My inability to accept the harsh realities of life had resulted in a it resulted in a disillusioned cynic clothed in a protective armor against the world's misunderstanding. That armor had turned into the prison walls, locked me in a locked me in loneliness and fear. All I had was all I had was an iron determination to live my my own life in spite of being in spite of the alien world. And here I was. And inwardly frightened in outward outwardly defiant a woman who desperately needed a group to keep going. So it seems to me that you know we hit bottom, we think we hit bottom, but there's always another bottom to hit. And I know that blackouts become more and more as we go on to carry on with the disease and uh, carry on drinking. And, you know, it's just some of those words are really tough. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen people in detox. I've seen, the, I've seen the struggles people go through, the frustration. You know, it's, it's the frustration of Wanting to live normally, but not being able to live normally because of the drink. And, you know, it's just one of those things, one of those situations where when you're in jail, it's easy to blame people. It's easy to fall apart. You know, you're, you're stuck with your own, you're stuck with your own brain. And a lot of times, sometimes you're in solidarity, you know, you're away from So, anyways, I'll carry on. Alcohol is that prop, and I didn't see how I, I could live without it. When my doctor told me I should never touch a drink again, I shouldn't afford, afford to believe him. I couldn't afford to believe him. I had to persist in my attempts to get straightened out enough to be able to use the drinks I needed without their turning on me. 
Besides, how could I be understanding? He was a drinking man. He didn't know what it was in need to drink. Nor what a drink would do for one in the pinch. I wanted to live. Not in a desert, but in a normal world. And my idea of a normal world was being among people who drank. Teetotalers were not included. And I was sure that I couldn't be with people who drank. Without drinking is that I was correct. I couldn't be comfortable with any kind of people without drinking. I never had been. Naturally, in spite of my good intentions, in spite of my protected life behind the sanitarium walls, I wanted time. Got drunk and I was astounded and badly shaken. That was the point at which my doctor gave me the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, to read. The first chapters were a revelation to me. I wasn't the only person in the world who felt and behaved like that. I wasn't mad or vicious. I was a sick, I was a sick person. I was suffering from actual disease that had it had a name and symptoms like diabetes or cancer or TB, like tuberculosis. And the disease was respectable, not moral stigma. But then I felt a then I felt a snag. I couldn't stomach religion. I didn't like to say I didn't like the invention of God or any of the other capital letters. I was an intellectual, and I needed an intellectual answer, not an emotional one. I told my doctor so in no uncertain terms. I wanted to learn to stand on my own feet, not change by one prop or another. And an intangible, and a dubious one at that, and so on and on for several weeks, why grudgingly, Plowed through some more of the offending book and felt more and more hopeless about myself. You know, I just want to say something too. I just wonder how many, how many of these books are out there that are stuffed somewhere in a closet or in, a, in somebody's drunk junk drawer. Or, you know, because, you know, when you go to me, sometimes they just give them to you. Or you buy them and uh, buy the book, but yeah, it's it's got to be the number one book now locked away <laughs> that nobody wants. Or if they do want it, then that's a good thing. But sometimes it's odds it's not good. Then the miracle happened to me. It isn't always too so sudden with everyone, but I ran into a personal crisis. That filled me with raging and righteous anger. And as I feel hopelessly and plan to get good and drunk and show them my eye caught a sensation in the book lying open on my bed. The walls crumpled and the light streamed in. I wasn't trapped. I wasn't hopeless. 
I was free. I didn't have to drink. I didn't have to drink them. I'm sorry. I didn't have to show them. This wasn't religion. This was freedom. Freedom from anger, fear. Freedom to know happiness. And freedom to know what? I'm going to start right there too. It's my mom's birthday today and uh, this is a very big turning point for my sobriety too was the fact that I was driving home from the nursing home and uh, I'm pretty sure it was her and God that came to my mind was I see all this big brick wall around my heart and uh, and I told her that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get, work at this brick wall and chisel it down you know and then I came home and I read the uh, 11 step prayer St. Francis is easy. It's gave me more strength. You know, every lapse and stuff like that, but, you know, after some years, but, and, and problems with narcotics, but I tell you what, that was strength. So, I went to a meeting to see for myself that this group of this group of freaks or bums who had done this thing to go into a gathering of people was the sort of thing that all my life from time I left my private world of books and dreams to meet the real world of people and parties and jobs had left me feeling an uncomfortable outsider needing the warming stimulus of drinks to join in. I went trembling into the house in Brooklyn filled with strangers and I felt I had come home at last to my own kind. There's another meeting, another meeting for the Hebrews word that is the King James Version of the Bible and translation translated salvation. It is to come home and I found my salvation I wasn't alone anymore that was the beginning of a new life a fuller life a happier life than I had ever known or believed possible I had found friends understanding friends who often know what I was thinking and feeling better and then I threw my and I knew myself and who didn't allow me to who didn't allow me to retreat into my prison of loneliness and fear over fancied, over fancied slight or hurt, talking things over with them, great floods of enlightenment, showed me, showed me myself as a, I really was, and I was like them. We all had hundreds of character traits, fears and phobias, likes and dislikes in common. Suddenly I could accept myself, false and all, as I was, for we weren't we all like that? And accepting, I felt a new inner comfort and a willingness and strength to do something about the traits I couldn't live with. Just stop there. They knew what to do about those black abysses 
that yawn. Ready to swallow one when I felt depressed or nervous. There is a concrete program designed to secure the greatest possible inner security for as long as I for as long as for as long as escapist. That feeling of impending disaster that had haunted me for years began to dissolve as I put into practice more and more of the 12 steps. It worked. An active member of AA since 1939, I feel myself a useful member of the human race at last. I have something to contribute to humanity. Since I am peculiar, qualified as a fellow sufferer to give old, to give aid and comfort to those who have stumbled and fallen over the business of meeting life. I get my greatest thrill of accomplishing from the knowledge that I have played a part in the near happiness achieved by countless, countless others like myself. The fact that I can work again and earn my living is important, but secondary, I believe that my own over, over, overweening self will has finally found its proper place. For I can so many times daily, Thy will be done, not mine and me. Thank you for listening. Um, I wish everybody the power of love today. Who else told you love you today? I do. Thanks. I'm stoked.